And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Episode 115 of the Keith Law Show. My guest today is Eric Longenhagen, prospect expert and writer for Fangraphs, who just posted his top 100 prospects for 2023 over on that site. I encourage you all to check it out. We're going to walk through players where we differ quite a bit in our rankings uh, between my top 100, which dropped a couple of weeks ago for subscribers to The Athletic, and his. And we'll do a little draft chat at the very end of our conversation as well. Uh, in the meantime, the most recent thing I've posted for subscribers to The Athletic was my ranking of the top 20 prospects for impact specifically in 2023, which is obviously a very different list than my top 100 and is tied a lot more to playing time than it is to long-term expectations, which is how I do the top 100. I also did have a draft blog post from before that where I uh, I was in Arlington, Texas at Globe Life Field for a 16 college tournament this last weekend that included at least two first-rounders or probable first-rounders in TCU third baseman Braden Taylor and Vanderbilt, out Vanderbilt outfielder Enrique Bradfield Jr., both of whom Eric and I discuss at the end of our conversation. For those of you who also follow me for board game content, my most recent review for Paste Magazine, uh, which went up actually on Valentine's Day, was Quacks and Company, which is the kids' version of the game Qua The Quacks of Quedlinburg. Uh, if you haven't heard of The Quacks of Quedlinburg, despite the awkward name. It's a fantastic game and a game that I really like for family play. Um, I think kids eight and up can handle it pretty easily, but that also you could just play with adults and be totally fine. It's fun enough. It's got push your luck elements. It is a, uh, there's a lot of simultaneous play, so it tends to move very quickly. Quacks and Company is a good kids version, but my experience is that there's kind of a narrow window for players to play that. If you're old enough to play that, you are almost old enough to play the, the full version of the game. So as much as I like Quacks and Company for what it is, I think you'll find the review is probably a little bit mixed on sort of, hey, if you like the adult version, do you really need this one? I'm not sure the answer to that. Now I'm excited to bring back my first ever guest from the Keith Law Show. We do this, we sort of do this every year. I think it's Eric Loggenhagen. If you haven't, if you don't remember, he does kind of what I do, except he does it for Fangraphs instead of doing it for the Athletic. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, if you don't remember, amid all the the academics and screenwriters and like important people that Keith has on, that the Fangraphs <laughs> prospect guy was the first one on the podcast. Like, I don't know what you're doing. Do you even care about Keith? If you don't is, know that, is that the guy with the hair and the magic I mean, definitely, the Gathering? Yeah. That's it. Definitely that is, is actually Eric. Yes. 
Man, the people who saw me at the pool this week definitely know I'm the guy with the hair. With the hair. <laughs> I'll have to figure out it's what not... games I'm bringing for my spring training trip for us to try this year. All right, then, yeah, then you got to let me, you know, have another run at, at showing you magic. It's so sure. hard to – magic stuff because the rules are so dense that it takes forever to just be fluent with them and yeah. then play the game. Right. Yeah, which is actually true of a lot of games. I, I mean, not all games I play, but there are a lot of games I play where it's like the second time you think, okay, now I know what I'm doing. Now I get it. Now I know what the yes. cards are or what action is more powerful. There's a game called Gizmos that I've probably played, I don't know, 50 times between in-person and online. And it was like 15 or 20 before I realized, oh, this one thing I'm supposed to do is just better that one action one type of card is just better not a ton better but better enough that i need to do that more and then suddenly i started doing better not great I'm still not great at that game but i like it but it was just i had to play it a bunch of times to see different things play out what other people do and oh i try this and it just doesn't work fails miserably okay do this instead and you know i think that's true of a lot of games it doesn't make it a bad game but it means you can't just drop somebody in and expect them to be good at it no doubt. Yeah. And I, I love seeing the way people's, especially like other prospect writers, how the things that make them good at or seem to draw them toward baseball prospects bleeding into the other parts of their life. So like you and I are pattern recognition guys where it's like, oh, I guess I should play a bird on the first turn to like start the engine. Right. Right. Yes. And um, it took me like a couple games to realize that. Yeah. That that's the way to write. You've got to start something to get going. Yeah, you have to make an yeah. adjustment. Yep, exactly. Um, well, let's talk prospects. I would We could talk games the whole time, and I think some of our listeners would like that. But you dropped your top 100 prospects the day before we're recording this. I dropped mine a couple of weeks ago. And as always, you know, I love looking at your list because it's like, where do we differ? Like, we tend to think about players very much similarly. We have access to, I think, a lot of the same information, uh, but we talk to different people and we see the players and we, we think differently about them. So I wanted to highlight some situations where some particular players where we widely diverged in either direction and just see where our differences are. Um, so one I'll start with, we're not wildly different on Jackson Merrill. You had him at 10th on your list. He was 20th on mine. Um, and I like Jackson Merrill a lot. And I thought I was being reasonably aggressive, but you're all in. And what is there anything in particular in the skill set that makes you I, I would say this is probably just more confidence. We probably think the same thing about his ceiling, but you're more confident that he gets there. I guess so. Yeah, I think the hit tool specifically there watching him for six weeks in fall league, it was a different it's it's a luxury look to get that long and to have this degree of confidence in like what I think is the driving tool here um i made the michael brantley at shortstop comp in the blurb uh and that is sort of where i think this is headed to talk to a bunch of people who face jackson merrill a lot uh, like people from other non-padre orgs who end up facing their affiliates and um go in there to see their guys against the padres and this is someone who they can't get out this is someone who doesn't really have a hole in the zone there's there's nowhere to beat this guy uh, and I felt I came away from folly confident that that was true. Um, so I, I valued him enough ahead of some of the other up the middle guys in that like 15 to 40 area, which is, you know, about where you have him. Like, you know, if you have a guy at 20 
he's basically 32. Like th- at that point, the, the players are starting to clump a little bit. Um, and so, you know, the other guys who were in that mix, like on the line where my sixties transition into 55s, I just didn't feel as quite as good about everybody else's bat to ball skill as I did Merrill. And that's just what I care the most about. Okay. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense to me. Um, I mean, I love the hit tool. I absolutely, absolutely agree. He's a shortstop. Um, he got a lot stronger after, for, for, I should have uh, prefaced this. He is a Padres shortstop prospect. He is their number one prospect. He was also their first round pick in 2021. And when he came back in the spring of 22, I don't know if you saw him after he signed in 21, but when he came back in 22, almost immediately I was getting texts from buddies who were like, you should see what Jackson Merrill looks like. He jacked up that yes. off season. And suddenly it was, oh, this guy's contact quality is probably going to be a lot better. And it was. And he was a more advanced hitter, I think, than most folks saw. Because I live in the area where, you know, lots of area, I know lots of area scouts here. And I didn't know a single one who thought he was this this soon. Now that doesn't yeah. affect where I rank him now, but it does affect did affect what I said at the time of the draft. And then all of a sudden this year it's whoa, sure. We were all like on this guy, particularly as a as a hitter. And I don't know that it's gonna be big power. I like the Brantley comp, right? That was a ton of doubles and triples. Um Brantley was younger and he could run. There were years where he was you know MVP ish. Not an MVP, but somebody if he was tenth or ninth on your ballot, yeah, actually he's that good of a player. You put that guy at shortstop, you probably is an MVP candidate in some years and justifies being in the top 10. Yeah. Some of it is and like, you know, Merrill was the 27th pick in his draft and he signed an under slot deal. I had him, I think 70th or close to that on my draft board, you know, as a high school shortstop in Florida. And those guys don't tend to make their way out to the SoCal Arizona showcase stuff that I frequent, you know, I, miss a lot of the Southeast guys until later um, when you like, you have to go in and see them. And then, but yeah, at this stage, the, this is, I think the best guy from the 2021 draft, like I'm more confident in the bat to ball here than with Marcelo Meyer, who I do think will have more power and a little bit more confident despite the injuries that like Jackson Merrill is actually a shortstop relative to like Marcelo. So yeah, like, I think at this stage, looking back, like this was the Padres do know how to pick them. They some of the stuff that they do feels like unsustainable, and um, just the way that they're willing to cycle through these guys to build this top-heavy roster, which is incredible. But also, they are pretty good at pointing at players and being like, "You're really good, aren't you?" And they're right a lot of the time. Yeah, you also have them over Jordan Lawler, who had yes. a pretty impressive debut and pretty impressive. I was very impressed by him in Fall League. I like all three of these guys. So do you. These are fine. Just for no listeners, Sewer. These are fine distinctions, right? All three of these guys are in both of our top 20s. Actually, I think they're all they're on your top 18, and they're all in my top 20. Um, so let me transition to the guy you have at number 20, which was one of our biggest differences. Um, I thought I was sort of aggressive on Red Sox prospect Miguel Blyce just by having him at 72 on my list where you know, we haven't seen him a lot. And there's definitely some swing and miss, but there's huge upside. You put him 20th. Um, so you're yeah. taking a stand on this guy. I'm not saying you're wrong in any possible way, but what is it <laughs> that made you sort of say, we all do this. We plant a flag, whether we intend to or not. You are simply saying you like this guy a ton and you believe that He's got yes. at least more probability. So great. What is it that you see here that makes you more of a believer that he's going to get there, get to right. some kind of ceiling? 
Yeah, this is the type of guy who he's come up a lot discussing things with people, obviously, because it does seem like I was ultra aggressive with this guy. Um, the things that that made me confident to do it, obviously, there's a, a little bit of an approach difference between you and I with players like this in, in general. When you and I were working together, at some point I sent you video, cell phone video of Alexander Canario swinging a bat just you know in a complex game for the giants and i was like you know this guy's 18 you see him swinging like this do you need to know anything else about this guy before you you think like he's definitely a first round talent and a lot of the time with the you know you you said no like you wanted to know a lot more about that guy and i am way more likely to just go i just got done seeing all these 17 18 year old guys do showcase stuff in high school now it's instructional league time in the fall and some of the same age type of players are coming up from the DSL. If a guy like Miguel Blaze is, is taking BP, it looks like the best handful of 17, 18 year old draft guys who I just got done watching. Um, so that that's part of what gives me the confidence to look at the recent top three, top five high school draft picks and apples to apples, Miguel Blaze with, with them, even though I didn't know, you know, Miguel Boyce didn't have a commitment. We don't have like two years of him playing East Coast Pro and Area Code and perfect game events on tape. Like there are all kinds of other reasons that there's like a, a delta to the conf- confidence interval between a guy like Termar Johnson and a guy like Miguel Boyce. But then let's dig into the data because this is just a guy who you, you look at him and he light he lights you up with the bat speed and like how much room for strength he still has and all that stuff. So the data, uh, surface level stats terrified me. And so at some point during the early part of the process, because this is like a 6% walk rate guy. And so that's mm-hmm. scary. I'm like a 27 or 28% strikeout rate guy in the complex. Right. Yeah, it was, 20, it was in the mid-20s somewhere. Yeah. Which on the complex, again, is sort of like, yeah, that's a yellow flag probably. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the I don't underlying... kill guys for that. I have guys on my – we both have guys on our list with strikeout rates, and we're going to talk about another one too with strikeout rates who are higher than you want them to be. So it's just another variable we consider. Uh, Miguel Blaise's barrel rate is like – it almost breaks the 2080 scale when you adjust it for his age. Uh, it is on par with like quad A guys like Jake Cave uh, and just much physically mature guys. The quality of his contact is is – up there with with these types of guys who are like it's well above the major league average certainly in center field uh right now like as miguel blaze is a teenager and then his chase and contact stuff which is more granular like it's a little bit more specific and telling than just the walk rate and, and the strikeout rate that stuff was better especially like his chase rates are actually closer to average so he's at the very least swinging at strikes he wasn't walking a lot but he is swinging at strikes and so um that was enough for me it separated him from the group of guys who were initially in like my 70 to 80 range these high variance high upside guys the junior camineros of the world like he was bucketed in the group as we were talking about guys with like carson williams of the rays there's a ton of strikeouts and power and all this. And then when Terror, you start I to, mean, that's a, that is a terrifying strikeout rate. And I have him on my top 100 yes. too. We're, we're both in agreements. But that guy, that might be too yeah. much where I just – where it's not a kill. Again, like he's on my list. He's on your list. But it's – we got to And the truth the is that 
the truth is there are lots of good big leaguers like Willie Adamas has a three bat. He's a three bat, but he hits it for a ton of power and he's an amazing defensive shortstop. He plays shortstop. Yeah, it helps. And so like I felt Carson Williams, I think has a 35 grade future hit tool projection on my list, but it's six power and a six shortstop glove. And everyone loves him. Like the kid people seem to love. And he was a two-way player like 18 months ago. So maybe that he's scratching the surface. And so, you know, like Miguel Blaise was in this group of, of guys talking through them and then through the data and talking to people on the phone, mostly some of it is confirmation bias because it's people who I know are fine to be like, yes, stuff that effing guy, do it. He it's insane. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's ultimately what led me to go like, look, fine. He belongs on either side of Tamar Johnson. This is about where a high school player this talented would go. Yeah, and I know the 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 batted ball data is excellent, right? That's why to me, that's why Blyce is on the top 100 with very limited sure. pro experience, super young, very wide range of outcomes, and some in zone swing and miss. I mean, that's the thing, right? He's not chasing. You're correct. He's not making as much contact on stuff in the zone as you'd like to see, and you know, I do worry that we get. This is not a criticism of you, obviously, but as an industry. We're a little caught up in some of that batted ball, you know, pitch by pitch data without fully understanding its predictive value. It's not to say it doesn't have it, because I'm sure it does, right? We want guys who hit the ball harder, or you end up with you end up overrating Xavier Edwards, like I did for a while. It's like, wait a sure. minute, this guy just does yeah. not hit the ball hard, and maybe yeah. he never will. Which sucks because I kind of like him as a player, but he is what he is. At some point you just we have to just accept. Is probably what it is, unless he does. Did you see the CJ Abrams? CJ Abrams has put on six to seven pounds this offseason. It was like we're reporting single digit weight gains. Six to seven pounds. Six to seven. He's like, that's good for me, which is somebody with a quick metabolism. I totally understand. That's maybe not a headline to me. I don't know. Eric Longenhagen returns from cruise having added six to seven pounds. Yes. Well, that's the other thing, right? <laughs> I do that every Christmas. What are you talking about? Right. Actually, it's, I'm more likely to do it during spring training because that's where I really eat. Um, Funny cake connoisseur, Eric Longenhagen. <laughs> the has added um, six to seven pounds. Yes. I'm going to put that. <laughs> we, should, we, we, need a, uh, we need some kind of bot to auto-generate very, very trivial spring training health updates. Um, <laughs> And just one to just close the book on Blyce too. The, a year from now, obviously, your ranking, you're expecting him to like he's got to go to low eggs. We don't have short season. You're expecting him to go up and do some great things, right? It does. We're not talk specifically about the stat line is, but he's going to do enough, say on on balls in play too, um, to justify us putting him on the top 100. You ranking him high? Is there? Not a bad, not a worst case scenario, because obviously these guys could all go there, strike out 40% of the time, and it's what the heck. Right. But is there sort of a middling scenario so that Red Sox fans who are listening, who are, you know, don't get disappointed if Blyce doesn't hit 25 homers in A ball this year? What would you consider sort of a we're on the right track kind of season for him that isn't a breakout season, but is obviously not any kind of, oh, we got to back off, pump the brakes a little bit on the hype? That's a good question. Um, yeah, like I do kind of think that this, if anyone has a chance to just be Jackson Churio, that this is the guy. Mm -hmm. and I think like the sheer opportunity that he has to do that, like the fact that that outcome exists at all is, is a separator. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess 
what does it look like? Probably it's probably him just going to low A, maintaining a strikeout rate in the mid 20%. I want to see the walk rate come up to something that is is uh more emblematic of what I'm seeing in the chase data, which is like closer to average in the 8% range, 9, 10%, which even at low A, where guys don't really throw strikes, would, would be on the a, you know, a little south of what I would think is average for a high confidence prospect, but would be fine for this guy. And then, yeah, I want to see him have like a 140 WRC plus as a teenager in, in full season ball, you know, something plus or minus, you know, 10 you know, adjusted runs created, like somewhere in there. Um, I think that would be, that's him j- just sort of sitting there. And then, what I think might happen is if he does that for two months and then he goes to high A and he does that the back half of the season and he's 19 doing that at high A, you know, is he basically Jackson Churio at that point? Like I think some of the Churio stuff, Churio at one point for me was like fourth and then just he and Ellie fell because of confidence or lack of confidence in their hit tools sustaining. You know what I mean? So, like, I think it's arguably more concerning that Ellie De La Cruz is punching out 33% clip at the upper levels while he's on a 40-man roster now uh, than Miguel Blaze doing it, yeah, like in the mid-20th percentile on the complex as an 18-year-old. So, um, but yeah, I think that, yeah, my my aim is definitely, and I'm removed enough from some of the online hype and oh, the zeitgeist yeah, of don't. what Just that don't. does. Well, yeah. well, that I don't, I don't realize that I'm creating like an expectation. You know, like I'm aware that the photon of light behaves differently when it's being measured, right? And observed. And so to like shine the spotlight on a guy like this may, not that like Fangraph's prospect list is going to do that, but, but the way now that that percolates through the internet uh, compounds in a way that I can't control and don't don't want to see happen. No, I'm, that is not know, our but, purpose, right? I have said her no. had and agents say things to me, like particularly about the draft. I'm like, I, I can't control that. Um, you know, and big part of life is general, accept the things you can't control. But I also would rather not know. Like, I am not trying to impact anyone's career, especially adversely. I mean, here at least it could be could be a positive if we spotlight a player and get him more opportunities or other teams look at him more a player we like in the draft gets drafted a little higher that's fine but i don't want to want to ever be affecting anyone adversely if that is an inevitable consequence of the work that you and i do we can't control that but maybe don't tell yes i mean i can dial up and down aspects of it right like i can choose to go back on my twitter and and it would be don't you know and say like Here's you know Miguel Blaze video and do whatever right like, and say like everyone look at this, but that I don't know what the the long term impacts of that are on like the young men who are also on social media. Like I I look at Kevin Durant and I go like oh we didn't you know that sucks that this this is like a sullen guy because he grew up in this era where like his expectations were just he's scrolling through them what people are saying about him. That's got to be weird. And yeah, I definitely have like sensitivity to that now, which is part of why I've like left that space. But at some point I do have to say, 
This is where I value this guy. And we've been wrong about guys like this before. Marco Luciano is now like close to 100 on my list, right? Yeah, you had him way down. Yeah. And that he was just this guy for me at one point. Yeah. And he's too. And he, I'm holding on hope more than you are. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like he held serve, like he basically did after he started to get the hype, quote unquote, that was like, all right, good. He's doing it. And only now, like watching him and his you know, back injuries and all this other stuff just happens. Entropy happens. And, you know, his, his body is hurt. And now I don't know what to do. He's got a stress fracture in his back. That's been barking at him for over a year. What do you do? Like, so. Yep. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone. Luckily with 24 seven us based live customer service from discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Um, so let me pivot back to something you said a moment ago. I got, we actually got a couple injury guys to talk about too, but the highest guy on my top 100, who is not on yours, I believe is George Valera from Cleveland. I have a pretty good guess why he wasn't on your list, but you know, he's 27th on mine. Obviously I'm betting big time on the upside. Um, what is it that you, uh, I feel like I should write it and put it, seal it in an envelope, what I think you're going to say. But go ahead. Tell me, where is your concern on Valera? Because you've seen him a bunch too. I know you see the upside. That's not what we're talking about. I'm going to guess this is related to probability. Yeah, I, I don't think that he will hit enough to be what I think is like a 50, the type of player who I want to put on the 100. There are certain guys who, even though they perform, you can see elements of their swing that are going to be a problem against big league pitching, whether that's like JJ Bladey, Austin Wells is a guy like that for me now. And Valera is one of those where I just think that there are ways to beat him in the zone that big league pitchers do. They just do the thing that he is going to have a hard time doing, which is getting on top of those high fastballs. He's just so you know long and underneath the baseball. And when he connects, it's gorgeous. You know, he does have that Robbie Cano type of cut. But what he doesn't have that like Cano did is that ability to like shorten up, hit that up and away fastball to left field into the gap. And then, you know, that's one of my 40 doubles. That's not what this guy does. Uh, so I do think that there's a flimsiness to the hit tool that concerned me. The on base component pushes and pulls against that for me. Like I could, t- I totally see why you have him in there because it's a left-handed bat who walks a ton and gets to power. Like when he's making contact, he's getting to huge power. And so, yeah, like I have that, I have him evaluated as the larger half of a platoon, but I do think that he's limited enough that he's a a tier below the guys who I put in my hundred. 
perfectly fair. I, I, I have no notes on this. And I, I mean, it's exactly where we disagree, right? And that's fine. I have, I don't share, particularly I don't share the concerns about the ability to manipulate the bat. I have some concerns about generally in-zone miss and is some of that more in his eye and recognition rather than in the shape. But that to me, that's, that is just a, a classic sort of subjective, a, a scouting thing. I did also sure. lean on that one. I've seen Valera. A couple of scouts I talked to who were kind of all in were pushing me to put him over Rokio, which to me, that's a no. That's Rokio is because Rokio has floor and ceiling for me. I mean, that guy's, I'll be shocked if Rokio doesn't just turn into at least a solid regular, but I think he's got a chance to be quite a bit more, especially I've always given Rokio a little extra because he you know, had the lost year in 2020 where he couldn't even get out of Venezuela. So developmentally, right. he's a little bit behind even his peers in the system. Sure. Um, yeah. Rokio is one of those where I was in the weeds because I put on, he played in the Venezuelan Winter League. And so I put on all that video. Yeah. And um, he maybe has the yips. <laughs> like, we'll see. he's yeah. struggled to throw to first base over the winter. It's just one of those weird things. Sometimes guys go through it, but let's yeah. see how that looks. Uh, I want to see that ring. here, right? Yes. Um, yes. So let me jump to uh, just we uh, real quick, a couple of. Let's say guys who have played catcher where we had some difference. It's not huge differences, but I'm curious again, sort of what's the where we differ. So I had Diego Cartaya sixth overall. You have him 28th. So you still like him, obviously. Right. You have Tyler Soderstrom 30th, just right behind Cartaya, whereas I have him 66th. And I will say, at least on Soderstrom, it's because to me, there's zero chance he catches. It's first base. And now that's just for me, it's first base only or DH or whatever, et cetera. Just a really high bar to clear. Uh, with the bat. So, you know, where do we differ on Cartaya? Do you have positional concerns? And on Soderstrom, is that a situation where you are just all in on the hit tool, which is, which I can completely understand. Yeah. The, with Cartaya, there are people who don't think he's necessarily a catcher, yeah, which I kind of disagree with. Okay. Obviously I um, do too. I think he's definitely a catcher. Yeah. I like his def defense a little better than um, Francisco Alvarez, who I think there's still a little, I think he's a catcher too. But if you're talking about these two guys, which guy are do you think is less likely to stay a catcher? Alvarez for me, by a little bit, but enough. I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah, I could totally see how, you know, even with the proximity thing, like Alvarez is basically there. Yes. He's oh, fighting that. for playing time with yep. Narvaez and, and Nito, right? So yeah. probably going to start okay. AAA, they said. But um, but yeah, he's basically there. I mean, I think there. he could I hit could... now in the big leagues, Alvarez, and probably get to yeah. some power pretty quickly and i just you know i always try to back off i know you you i mean we've both been doing this forever now you don't want to get over excited about he's gonna do this right now in the big leagues that's a guy i look at yeah he's ready he can he i don't worry about him hitting in the big leagues yeah um yeah like uh man like maybe you're right like it is the, the difference between the two of them and they both have monster arms right so even though there are things about both of what they're doing on defense that people are concerned about that I'm concerned about specifically with Alvarez. Like Alvarez is a, a barrel chested kind of stocky dude. He's kind of tightly wound in the lower half, which <laughs> separates someone like Alejandro Kirk from him. Like Kirk is big, but he's spindly and uh, you know, like loose. Um, but yeah, like, and Francisco Alvarez does really swing super duper hard in a way that I could see scaring some people. Um, I tend to, take the under a little bit on what catchers are going to do offensively overall, just because of the grind. 
how much of a beating they end up taking that back there. Um, and so, you know, Diego Cartaya played in about 90 games in 2022. He caught 40, 60 games, right? So roughly half of what he would be expected to catch as an everyday big leader. And I do think that like, you know, offensive performance tends to dilute for, um, for these guys. And also that over the course of like their trek toward the big leagues, that they're just taking a beating all the time that creates some of this natural, you know, variance, basically the guys who break late uh, tend to be guys who are built like Diego Cartaya, like Tyler flowers, performing he's performing he's performing and then he gets to the big leagues and it takes a while and travis darno and some of darno is injury but it's like he's awesome he's but, but awesome. he's a catcher he's right that, holiday. that also happens to catchers it's absolutely fair no to factor that in so just in terms of like you know the guys who are right there in my 55s compared to someone who has you know there, there may be more obstacles here but for sure on upside and i could see it as you apples to apples him with alvarez like i totally get that and could probably have been talked into that now retroactively like which of these two guys do you really think has a better chance of staying back there they both have hit tool risk don't they you know so their defensive components are pretty similar uh you could argue that cartaya has more time to remedy that stuff because he's younger Alvarez, maybe some of the stuff on defense won't ever get better. He's, you know, so, um, mm-hmm. so yeah, pretty interesting. Um, couple of guys who, a uh, pair of guys in particular, and actually I'll take that back. Let me put all three in here. Three guys who are on your list who are not on mine. Um, and who I think all have some similarities. Uh, Kobe Mayo, 36, I think on your list, I think's the highest guy on your list who is not on mine. Um, Spencer Steer at 47 on your list, not on mine. Addison Barger, 53, not on mine. Now, in the case, I'll just say of the latter two, I lean more towards utility, utility infielder, multi-position. Barger has some platoon concerns. Mayo, it's a little less of that. It's, I'm not sure he's a third baseman, and I do question. I mean, that is a very, very large man, um, and yeah. I saw the swing get long on him. I may be biased in the wrong direction by seeing him a little bit too much. Fully acknowledge that. I see a ton of the Orioles system. Um, but any any or all of those three you'd like to talk about sort of where you, why, why you are buying. Obviously, you do believe in all three of those guys as future regulars, given you've ranked them all in your top 60. Yeah. So, Steer, it's just confidence in the hit-power combo. That was it. Like, for sure, second and third base uh, for me. Uh, I There are guys who I think move around who I value in this range for sure, uh, even though they're not like the everyday second baseman and or whatever. Um, Barger, it's just rare lefty bat speed, kind of under a bushel. He had a drug suspension a couple of years ago. I don't know for what, like could have been as benign as we, like, I don't know. Um, but um, he had a drug suspension. So missed most of two years between that and the pandemic. And then the Blue Jays just sent him back to low A. They didn't say, ah, well, you know, you missed time. You're 21. Let's, you know, accelerate this a little bit. They just were like, go to low A. And so then he was under my radar there as like, yeah, he performed, but he's old. Um, Then explodes in 2022 on paper, comes to the fall league. It's just rare lefty bat speed for a guy who I think can actually stay on the dirt. Not a shortstop. Uh, but no, I've seen him there. I definitely not a shortstop. I thought he was perfectly fine at third base. Yeah. Second and third. Fine. 
Um, obviously, Toronto has a third baseman. Santiago uh, Espinal is great and like a luxury utility guy for them. And so Barger's like going to get reps in left and maybe he'll play some combination of second and left. I do think he's better than Kevin Biggio. I think he fits in a nice platoon with like Merrifield at second base, left field, you know, mix in matching. But ultimately, and this was one that like Tess was pretty adamant about. Uh, Tess Taruskin, who is a contributor at Fangraphs, who does prospect stuff with me. Uh, she, you know, she has conviction around this guy. She came down the fall league and we spent time with, uh, this team and, and, and Mesa and, um, she's in on this guy. And so the, the zips projections for Barger also have him close to 50th. And so that was reinforcing, but ultimately, you know, all the components were there performed. It was like a 140 WRC plus, um, in the mid minors and he's 22 or 20, he was 22 and is now 23 in that area. Um, and yeah, the bat speed, like from the left side is pretty, pretty good. So we're in on that guy. And then Mayo Mayo. That's me. That one was all me. That's he has hit and hit for power since high school. His swing is weird and, and ugly and Hunter Pensy in a way it has never impacted the amount of contact he makes. I haven't projected in right field and I, this is you yeah. know, one of those things. I kind of like, do too, actually. The, yeah. Part of the reason I'm off of there now is like, I had this guy projected in right field from the jump, like since high school, been watching him take infield, and it's just like, oh no, I see the <laughs> right. I know the the arm strength is there, but the other stuff, you know, sometimes he'll wow you, but the mobility is a real issue over there. But I haven't projected in right field athletically. And yeah, like all of a sudden it's like this guy, like he's playing shortstop, like what this idiot doesn't even know what position he plays. <laughs> mm-hmm. So frustrated with that stuff and like uh, still, you know, this guy's playing third base. He projects in right field. Um, I just think that there's so much power still to come because he is so big that once he moves to right field, that part of it might really take off. And even though his swing is dumb looking, it's always worked for him. And he was <laughs> a I dumb looking in, swing. I love it. In his write up, I describe his leg kick. It's an innie. Like he actually finishes his legs finished. They finish closer together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a reverse leg his, kick. Yeah. Dry, it's, it's so a reverse weird. stride. Yep. But he just hits the piss out of it, Keith. And so I'm all in like, <laughs> you can see he's sort of the back of that 55 group, right? Like the guys who like Colson Montgomery to, uh, you know, it's a corner, but the body's still so projectable. The field hit appears there and the ceiling on the power, I think has like, uh, you know, it's bigger than, you know, I'm because I'm, I'm doing like frame and athleticism based projection, right? Like Kobe Mayo's already got this power and he's built like a tight end. So yeah, like that's, that's me being out on my skis a little bit with my hubris and just going like, wow, there's, this is a separator for me. And you know, there's a degree of confidence there that, um, that buoys where I have him as well. The only thing I'll add is um, for me, Mayo is, the highest ceiling of those guys easily on age on power upside. And, you know, I know he hasn't necessarily shown all the game power people anticipate. I think it's going to get there. Um, I do think he's, he's got, he can't stay at third for me. It is not only is he really tall for the infield, but some guys make that work. He doesn't move 
at all like an infielder. And, you know, try him in right field. He's got the arm. Try him in right field before you move him to first base. He's still got the upside. Whereas the other guys, I have Steer is more... I don't. I question how much that power is really going to translate to the majors. Although, obviously, Red's great home, home ballpark um, for power. And Barger, I think, is going to have some platoon issues um, that might make him better served. As you said, actually, the way you described using him, I think, makes a ton of sense. Make him the strong half of a platoon. I think he could be really good that way. Um, one yeah. more guy, just one more guy I wanted to mention, um, this was, uh, the difference in timing really is I'm assuming you dropped Danny Espino from Cleveland down to oh, 93 yeah. on your list because we found out earlier this week, he's got a pretty significant shoulder issue. And it's funny. He was relatively lower on my list. Actually didn't write down where I have him on my list, but he was like in the thirties or so. And that was actually a reflection of, he was 33. This guy was a top 20, top 15 prospect going into last year. And really, on May yeah. 1st last year, looked like he was the best pitching prospect in baseball. So me saying he was at 33 was, I don't know if we really know how healthy this guy is. Then we find out he's broken. And I'm assuming yeah. that's why you dropped him to 93. Yeah, actually, his injury caused a few dominoes to fall. I was one of those dudes who ran into Goodyear last spring to watch this guy like sit 98 to 102 and have Jake DeGrom's slider and land it consistently and, you know, vary the shape on his breaking ball and all, everything basically, right? And he's kind of a freak. Espino has always been. He's built like an underwear model and he stretches four times a day and all this other stuff. And um, so I was all in and he was 12th on my list. Um, Cleveland told me he was a full go for spring and I saw, you know, a video of him throwing and working out over the winter and uh, was just prepared to leave him in the top 15 just because his freak factor is right there with Yuri Perez and Andrew Painter and the other guys who I valued up there. Um, and so then, you know, the shoulder thing happens and this is what happened when, when the guys tumble from that top 25 area, it is almost always because of something like this. Brent Honeywell and AJ Puck and Forrest Whitley, like the snowball of injury starts to roll. Um, and so, yeah, it becomes hard to, it's easy to evaluate Daniel Espino and love everything about what's happening. And it's hard to value him because of the injury stuff. So uh, he ended up falling to the back of the hundred where there are also a bunch of injury risk guys with huge shit. So him, Mason Miller from the A's, Gavin Williams, you know, Gavin Williams, realizing that we wanted to clump some of these injury risk guys toward the back of the hundred made me move Gavin Williams up a half a tier from where he was on my Cleveland list from, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. Like when you really ballpark who belongs to the back of the hundred, he probably belongs. Um, and so, yeah, like those injury and relief risk guys at the back of the hundred, uh, DL Hall's already there and. Wilmer Flores isn't built like a traditional starter. Now Espino sort of fits among that group. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Um, going to be hard I... for them to build an innings count there too, right? Yes. Like oh, his 40-man sure. clock's ticking. You only have yep. so much time and so many options. It's going to be tough. Yes, agreed. Um, I mean, he would be probably off my 100 if I redid it right now because of the injury, because that's generally if a pitcher's got a significant shoulder injury. Um I think I've pretty much always taken those guys off the hundred in a, you know, if you want to criticize me for an excess conservatism on that, okay, sure. I will 
live with that. But the history of guys with shoulder injuries is obviously not not good. Right. Um, yeah. It's Brendan McKay. It's you know like the, we yeah. start going through everyone who it is, and it's like really scary. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so before I let you go, we'll talk. Let's talk a little bit about uh, this year's draft because the college season started this yeah. past weekend. I was in Arlington, Texas. I saw Braden Taylor, TCU, Enrique Bradfield Jr. at Vanderbilt. A couple of lower down guys. You saw Chase Dollander from Tennessee. A couple other guys. There were two tournaments going on out there. I think in Arizona, you at least saw a bunch of schools. So, um, what's jumped out at you so far? Particularly, do you think we've seen anybody? I'm thinking more college ranks at this point make any kind of significant moves in either direction based on what came out of that first weekend, which, which I do think just because of primacy bias, right? First thing you see in the year, guys can make a lot of money just coming out very strong in that first weekend. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting because some of the teams, some of the team's behavior in the draft is definitely, definitely has recency bias, which makes sense because if players are improving and progressing, then, of course, they're going to look better over time. And then you have some of the other teams who have a take a like wider scope and they're happy to take buy low opportunities on players who were good during their freshman and sophomore years and then not so much as a junior. And I'm thinking about like Cleveland with Chase DeLauder and mm-hmm. Shane Bieber had a down draft year. Uh, so it doesn't always work. Andrew Calica. Andrew Calica was conf- conference player of the year as a sophomore um, at Santa Barbara and then had terrible junior year. And then Cleveland took him and he didn't do anything. Right. So, right. Um, it's, you know, it's a mixed bag, but sometimes players do get better. Um, I guess it's going to be pretty easy for people to apples to apples. Wyatt Langford at Florida with Dylan Cruz at LSU towards the very, very top of the draft. And I could see how they come away after Cruz has basically held serve as the top guy in this class since he, you know, didn't sign in high school, right? Like yeah, took himself he out was a guy. Right. He was a guy in high school where when he didn't sign, it was like, all right, well, three years from now, this is probably the best guy. He's the best unsigned high schooler. And he's held that for three years now. Um, but now like Langford's tool set is pretty similar and he's starting to encroach, I think on, on uh, Cruz, and I think he re- reinforced a little bit of that the first week of the year. I don't necessarily agree that that is how it should be, but um, it's certainly I can see how people are are thinking that. Yeah, that's one two for me. Um, I haven't published a ranking yet because I, I, at this point, uh, just because of the timing of what I do, I like to get a week or two of not just seeing sure. players, but also just talking to guys. It's like let, let me just get into this a little bit more and I'll put up probably right. just a top 30 ranking. But the one, one thing I heard this weekend was, Hey, this Langford, he should be in the one, one conversation, you know, spoke to somebody who said, I'd take him over Cruz, even with you know, you're fully acknowledging what Cruz is that Langford is uh, pretty close as a hitter and probably a better overall athlete. But um, you know, obviously this positional, you know, he's a left fielder in college and I see that and I'm like, Oh my God, is this Derek Fisher all over again? We were a seven runner and a three defender. Like how is that possible? Yes. Right. It's scary. That's right. Derek Fisher. Yeah. God, we both saw him. Do we see him together? That might even be possible. Yes, we did. I thought so. I think it is right. That's obviously that's why that came to me. And it's like that guy, I mean, he could have been hit on the head with a ball just standing in left field. I just never understood. Yeah. Like, you're the best athlete on the team. What is happening here? 
So yeah, Langford's definitely in that area. The field in that field is not good. As not I, good. I published no. a, a pre-draft ranking, folks can you know go to the site and find it. Just hover yep. over prospects, click on the board, and then once you get to that next page, click on MLB draft, and there they are. Langford's mm-hmm. three for me entering mm-hmm. the year. I have Braden Taylor from TCU ahead of him still, just because give me the lefty stick who stays on the dirt. Yep. Um, it's there's definitely not as much juice there with Taylor as there is with Langford. I just like the blend of the contact and the power and the, like, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I, I do think that that whole LSU team is they're rock stars, right? Like LSU baseball is as close to a high pro, like a nationally known program uh, in college baseball as, as there is, they've got a ton of, they've taken advantage of the transfer portal. They hired the coach away from U of a, who took them to the college world series. And, uh, he brought a bunch of players with him. Jacob Berry was a high pick last year. Um, and they have a bunch of guys again this year. I, d- I think some of the guys who I've noticed have done something that makes me want to buoy them. Uh, it's not like at the very top of the draft, I guess, but there are some, you know, interesting early flags up. So like ASU's Saturday guy, his name is Christian Curtis with a KH. He's a KH Christian Curtis. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that like guy transferred? heresy or something? I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, but, um, so what do I know? What uh, the, uh, you know, he this, the transfer portal is such a huge variable now. Um, so this guy was at AM. He only pitched five games ever for AM. He had a Tommy John that maybe didn't, wasn't well performed, maybe, allegedly. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I know you guys have that bet MGM money, but allegedly, uh, <laughs> just in case. And then, um, so now, you know, last year with AM, he was like 1992. His first pitch on Saturday was 96. He's 6'5", 210, like it looks right, you know. So let's see how that develops over the course of the spring. It's one outing, right, where he was humming 93 to 96, basically, with a 90-mile-an-hour cutter and, like, change-up feel. He, it, he's good. He's a prospect who's draft-eligible this year, who whose name I didn't know until I sat down at Phoenix Muni on Saturday. Uh, so, so there's that. Trey Morgan with LSU, who is, like, the Eric Hosmer of college baseball, where it's, like, super slick glove team leader type guy you know roundup guy in the clubhouse raw powers there but the swing has never produced that type of power in game his swing looks different to me and i haven't seen enough of it to like articulate what the changes are but i do think that he has made a change that maybe has him on on plane for impact uh, a little bit sooner like through a little bit more of the zone so let's see how how that one shakes out too those are those are the two guys and then like all of tennessee's arms you know, uh, Chase Burns for next year and Drew Beam and like uh, Zach Joyce. And, you know, they all throw hard and got their prospects for sure. And there are guys like that. But um, then I have some round down guys and this and that. But um, but yeah, the, I saw Grand Canyon. I saw Jacob Wilson. I saw Tennessee. I saw Michigan State and Mitch Jeb, their little shortstop who can really hit lefty stick, you know, spray kind of got that Eddie Rosario swing going on. Not as much juice as Rosario, but that bucket striding still gets extended and can flay those outer third pitches the other way type of middle infielder. Like it's, it's cute and he can really hit and yeah, a bunch of guys, but it's too early for me to be like, yeah, this guy's, you know, you know, like what, with what you did with Henry Davis, where you're like, you know what, this guy's probably going to go in the top three. <laughs> right at some point you have that sense and no one has tipped into that like my intuition is not uh tipped into that yet some of that was prospecting too mm-hmm. um 
yeah, I saw Braden Taylor, like I said, and yeah, you got him. It's not huge power. It's hard enough contact. It's a good swing. Uh, it's a good body. I questioned some of the instincts. Like, he made some plays at third. It was not athleticism, but he was just like wrong place or trying to go after plays that should be the shortstops. But I also think that's something that you can more easily work on as opposed to making a guy a better athlete or even like improving a guy's footwork, which can be done, but requires more effort. It was interesting to contrast Taylor to Enrique Bradfield Jr. at Vanderbilt, who's I think probably the fastest guy in the college class this year. I mean, I've gotten 80 run times on him before, but um, you know, first of all, he was trying to bunt uh, on the first pitch, the majority of the plate appearances I saw, which is idiocy. But you know, now this is this is draft year, and we bear down on guys a lot more. And I spent more time looking at his swing, and then thought, you know, it's kind of a mess. Actually, it's not even a, a, a strength issue. Although obviously he's he's kind of thin, um, but physically it reminded me a little bit of hey, we all a lot of us dinged Trey Turner as an amateur, thinking he's not going to be yes. strong enough, he's not going to get to power, and it's you know it's an eighty runner, but is he going to hold up physically? Like, I'm setting that aside. Bradfield can probably put on some strength. But the swing has so many moving parts, so many things that seem to work against making better quality contact. And and because they're both left-handed hitters, so it's very easy for me to watch and then go back to video and compare. It's like Taylor's is just simple, clean, direct. You shouldn't have to do a lot with it. Right. Whereas Bradfield, there's a lot of work to do. And I don't think it's like Jaron Kendall where that was just a complete disaster. But it's – Hey, here's yeah, another Vanderbilt guy with worlds of talent where the team that drafts him is going to have to be ready to, all right, we need to improve the efficiency of your everything from your stride to the way your hands move to the way your hips move. That It is a lot of things that have to happen. I still think Bradfield goes in the first round because there's so much upside. Sure. But one of the beauties of these early season tournaments is you get to see two guys like that at the same time and can compare and contrast so much more easily. Yeah, I think, um, and I like Enrique Bradfield a lot. There was a, a point at the end of last season when he was kind of banging him. Like he hit one home run to the left of, you know, the batter's eye. And then when you look at where the parts of the zone that contact is happening, it is in a pretty limited spot at the top of the zone where he can like, he kind of like alters his posture and his his bottom hand can really drive like that sweeping full effort swing through the top of the zone. But anything in the bottom half of the zone, he's chopping at and like spraying and slicing. And he has the speed that, uh, you know, he can just be like Luis Castillo or someone like that, where he's still, he's like a 1984 leadoff hitter type of guy. Um, and I like that player enough that that guy still goes in the middle of the first round for me. That's what we were hoping Sal Freilich would be when he was in the draft. Body types are different. Like Freilich more compact and this and that, and like had multi-sport background. And there were other things about the profile that were different. But it was boy, there's this guy makes plenty of contact. It's light, but I feel good about him playing up the middle. And that guy probably still goes in the middle of the first round. And then if it turns out that he has a seven hit tool or whatever, then he's just a really good player. And if not, then he's still probably it's you know a fourth outfielder. But again, like that's a good player. That's someone who's like a cog in your mix. That's someone who the Rays or the Guardians or you know some of the teams that like to Voltron together, three win players by virtue of having like a Manny Margot and a Josh Lowe together. Um, you know, Enrique Bradfield still plays that type of role for a team like that, and that's still a, a damn good player. 
Yep, I absolutely agree. I still, like I said, I still think he goes in the first round. I just think I probably, you know, rate him slightly lower than I did because I saw him at Ar- Arkansas last May and I saw one of his home runs not the other way, but it was like, wow, he got some juice into that. There's a little more strength here maybe than I anticipated, but there are just there are other things going on, and that's what happens. Like I said, when we start to bear down on these guys. Um, my uh, guest today has been Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs. I encourage you to go to Fangraphs where you can see his ranking of the top 100 prospects for 2023, which is a list that's almost as good as mine is. And you can also, as Eric said, hover over prospects and you can see his early ranking of players for this year's draft as well. And uh, you could follow him on Twitter, but it sounds like you probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for joining me. <laughs> Thanks for having me again, buddy. And um, it feels good to be comfortable enough with our friendship that I can come on do a zoom call with you while I have like bedhead 80 grade bedhead. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I agree. I agree. It's good. You, your hair is good enough. You could probably play for LSU. Yeah. Well, thanks. Well, wait till you see me throw and you get the old (laughs) 61. (laughs) See you Keith. That's all for this week's. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with my work, I am uh, still on Twitter at Keith Law. I'm also on Spoutable, uh, S-P-O-U-T-I-B-L-E, also at Keith Law, uh, and most of the usual sites as well. And as always, you can follow me in the Athletic app to keep up with everything that I'm writing. Uh, as we get deeper into the spring, there will be a lot more in-person work for me as I go to college games and eventually head to spring training with plans for me to go to Florida for a week and then also to Arizona for a week once the minor leaguers actually get underway. Thanks again for listening and stay safe. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.